Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse on all counts and assess what it signals to a divided and heavily armed populace in which 30% of Republicans believe that violence may be required, with 18% feeling that violence will be necessary for patriots to take back their country. Joining us to discuss whether it will be open season on left-wing demonstrators by right-wing vigilantes sanctioned by self-defense laws and now considered heroes is Ruth Conniff, the editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin Examiner, who formerly served as editor-in-chief of the Progressive magazine. Her latest articles at the Wisconsin Examiner are Waiting for the Rittenhouse Verdict as the World Falls Apart and Jury Finds Rittenhouse Not Guilty on All Counts. And we will examine whether ridicule could expose the absurdity of Kevlar and camo-clad sunshine patriots in search of imaginary enemies on the streets of America. On the stand, Rittenhouse described his assault rifle as cool. But shouldn't these military weapons in the hands of amateurs be seen not as instruments of power, but as symbols of cowardice? Then, with the House passage of the $2 trillion Build Back Better bill now in the hands of the U.S. Senate, where Democratic Senator Joe Manchin will decide its fate, we'll speak with James Van Nostrand, Director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and a Professor of Law at West Virginia University College of Law. He joins us to discuss how Manchin and the coal lobby in West Virginia talk a good game about transitioning away from coal but do everything to prevent alternatives from getting a foothold in the state. Then finally, we will speak with Aluf Ben, the editor-in-chief of Haaretz in Israel, about an online conference at UCLA Today, which you can link to at backgroundbriefing.org. The conference features Israel's defense minister, the former head of Mossad, and a former foreign and justice minister, along with a former U.S. ambassador to Israel, among others, who will discuss Israel's national security as Iran passes the threshold of having enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon. Aluf Ben joins us to discuss whether the war in the shadows between Israel and Iran using cyber weapons and sophisticated assassination tools advances Israel's national security in the absence of diplomacy and whether attempts by the Israeli right to buy off the Palestinians without granting them statehood will ever work. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Ruth Conniff, who's the editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin Examiner, who formerly served as editor-in-chief of the Progressive Magazine. And her latest articles at the Wisconsin Examiner are Waiting for the Rittenhouse Verdict as the World Falls Apart and Jury Finds Rittenhouse Not Guilty on All Counts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ruth Conniff. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And it is hardly a surprise that Rittenhouse was acquitted. And it did seem that this judge was determined to get that outcome, but he also had a plan B that he would have called a mistrial, and indeed he could have even called a mistrial with prejudice, which would mean that Rittenhouse could not be retried. Are my suspicions about the judge's biases correct? Well, you're certainly um, saying something that a lot of people agree with. It, the judge you know, began the trial by insisting that the prosecution not use the word victims to describe the people who were shot and killed by Rittenhouse, and he frequently admonished the prosecution uh, in a way that he did not admonish the defense. So people had the feeling throughout the trial that this was going to be the outcome and that, you know, that the judge seemed determined that Rittenhouse be cleared. And what about the prosecutor? Prosecutors normally work with the police. 
he didn't throw the case, I imagine, but he was pretty incompetent. I mean, he when he had Rittenhouse on the stand, he wasted most of his questioning on extraneous matters, and only towards the end of a long days of questioning did he get around to the more potent questions, uh, which were about why this kid showed up with an AR-15 assault rifle and whether he felt threatened, and he got him to admit that he didn't feel threatened. So what's the story with him? Was it incompetence, or did he was he half-hearted? No, I don't think that there's any conspiracy there. I think it just wasn't a very effective prosecution, and uh, a lot of people were frustrated by exactly what you're what you're pointing out, that he talked a lot about Rittenhouse's curfew violation, which just is such a minor issue um, and took until the the jury was glassy eyed to start talking about the more substantive issues. But, you know, the problem in this case is not just what the lawyers did. The problem is also just Wisconsin statutes and the way that the sort of evolving way that we treat self-defense in this country. And there is room for a self-defense argument when somebody brings a gun into a situation like this and is and the and the self-defense is they're afraid of the people who are trying to disarm them. So that's a real problem. And and then that's not just a problem in Wisconsin, although it is, you know, Wisconsin statutes allow that. It's also happening in the Ahmed Arbery case in Georgia, where, you know, there is a self-defense argument that may succeed there that a man who was pointing a shotgun at Arbery was afraid for his life because he was afraid Arbery was going to take his gun and shoot him with it. So not only is it a self-defense argument that involves somebody who is, you know, the person who brought the gun, but it's a self-defense argument that says the person is afraid of their own gun that they brought. I mean, it's truly, uh, you know, a moment to to consider what we're doing with our gun laws in this country and with our self-defense argument. Well, indeed, and you could make the case that in many states, including Wisconsin, life is cheap as a result of this peculiar double standard. And I noticed when Rittenhouse was on the stand, he did refer to the fact that he's sporting his AR-15 military-style assault rifle was cool. And I'm wondering about whether we'll ever have a debate in this country about whether guns are a symbol of power or an instrument of cowardice. I know that the prosecutor did try to point out that these three that were shot, two killed, were pretty brave. I mean, standing up to a guy with an assault rifle, particularly after he shot the first guy four times, it's pretty amazing. I don't think too many people I know would want to do that. I don't know whether you've had a gun pointed at you, but it's not a pleasant uh, experience, Ruth. No, and I feel like it's not an experience that should become so widespread. I mean, it's just insane that we allow this and that we, and, you know, in this case, have have basically said it's it's okay, that we can have vigilantism, we can have people bring these heavy arms into a situation where it's bound to result in death. And, you know, I, I feel like this case is so political and people are so set in their warring camps. And we immediately saw statements released by Republicans in our state saying that justice was served and this was a good outcome. And it's just, you know, of course, if, if the person who were carrying the gun were a Black Lives Matter protester, they would have the completely opposite point of view. I mean, it's just... It's all about politics and people are dug into their side. But this is crazy. It is crazy that we are allowing this escalation of violence. And Rittenhouse was a kid um, who was caught up in a situation in which a bunch of adults were carrying these weapons and, you know, promoting an idea of how we deal with political discourse in this country that is just deadly. It's just deadly, and it's a downward spiral, and it's really dangerous. So I worry about that. I worry about how emboldened these right-wing vigilantes are going to feel by this. And again, I'm speaking with Ruth Conniff, the editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin Examiner, who formerly serves as editor-in-chief of the Progressive Magazine, and her latest articles at the Wisconsin Examiner are Waiting for the Rittenhouse Verdict as the World Falls Apart and Jury Finds Rittenhouse Not Guilty on All Counts. But I'm wondering whether you can disarm these kind of people. So this this kid obviously hung out with the Proud Boys and gave the white power salute and they'll celebrate him. And those people that show up with their AK-47s and their AR-15s fully decked head to toe in Kevlar and camo 
I mean, it's it's a joke. They're clowns. I mean, why do you have to sport military weapons on the streets of America? Where's the enemy? Are the Martians going to show up? Mm-hmm. What the hell is going on? Why do we take these people seriously? Why can't we make fun of them? I mean, the bigger the gun, the smaller the penis. What's going on here? Well, you know, I think the problem is that particularly since Donald Trump was elected, the Republican Party and this the whole apparatus of the Republican Party has really thrown in with the right wing fringe. So you're right. Like this is not most people. You know, most of my neighbors are not putting on their military fatigues and marching around my neighborhood carrying heavy weaponry. But that element of the of the right wing base is something that mainstream Republicans have decided they absolutely will not reject. They are courting chaos and violent anarchy. It's just, it's really something, unwinding basic democratic institutions, undermining confidence in the vote and promoting guns and violence. And that's, you know, it's been an element of right-wing politics for a long time, but it has really exploded in a way that is, is, it's scary. It's scary for the future of the country. Well, what worries me, Ruth Conniff, is that there was a recent poll that indicated 30% of Republicans feel that violence may occur in the future or in the near future in politics. And 18% of Republicans feel that violence is necessary for patriots to take back their country. So that's a pretty alarming in, in itself. But then if you add to that the signal that's being sent by these verdicts in Wisconsin in the Rittenhouse trial, these people out there that are talking on the far right about civil war and, um, you know, they've got their echo chamber with Fox and Sinclair and Breitbart, etc. Are we heading in that direction? I mean, we have to try to resist that. We have to say no to that. You know, we can't feed it. And I think we're in a, a weird time, not just politically and with the pandemic, but also the social media environment, I think amps up this kind of road rage mentality where people just are not in their right minds and they're not interacting with other people in a face-to-face way that could kind of calm things down. So I I think it's really important to resist it, uh, to reject it, and to try to, um, you know, just support an idea of community and democracy and humanity that we can live with because the the alternative is just it's just unacceptable but does this mean that it's now open season on left-wing protesters whereas right-wing vigilantes are given a green light and they are told they're heroes i think that's how it feels to a lot of people and um you know the a lot of the activists in kenosha and from the surrounding cities in wisconsin were gathered in kenosha last night to just processed their grief over the verdict and went to a park far from the downtown where there were some right-wing vigilantes who showed up to celebrate. And, you know, the it's very peculiar, the narrative, the way that this whole thing has unfolded. I mean, back when George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, there was a moment when there was a very widespread coming to grips, I think, with the reality of racist police violence and what a different world you live in if you're black and you're you know have to be so careful in encounters with the police and and then before long the the media started talking about looters and rioters even though the vast majority of black lives matter protests across the country and across the world after that event were completely peaceful And this kind of hardening of positions, this sort of underlying racist narrative that goes back to the beginning of our country, that that black people are dangerous, that these protesters represented, you know, the forces of anarchy and violence. I just feel that it's so important uh, to talk about and surface the fact that the people who did violence here were the white vigilantes who brought weapons to Kenosha. There was arson. Right, but the, the victims were white, too. The victims were white, but they were there supporting the Black Lives Matter protesters. And the reason, the underlying kind of driving force, as you pointed out, the white nationalists organizing the militia Facebook page, the initial call to arms in Kenosha, it all comes out of this weird uh, white pride 
underworld that has, you know, unfortunately found a growth medium in Donald Trump and now in the rest of the Republican Party. And people need to stand up to that. There are some people in Wisconsin, the editor of a, a website called Right Wisconsin is an anti-Trumper and has really pointed out and rejected the ways in which so many public officials, just a majority of them in the state and the country, are embracing really destructive, really evil <laughs> messages and forces. And, and that needs to be pointed out and it needs to be rejected. We just, we can't feed this. It's a really sick thing. Well, Ruth Conniff, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Ruth Conniff, who's editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin Examiner, who formerly served as editor-in-chief of the Progressive Magazine. And her latest articles at the Wisconsin Examiner are Waiting for the Rittenhouse Verdict as the World Falls Apart and Jury Finds Rittenhouse Not Guilty on All Counts. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing how Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and the coal lobby in West Virginia talk a good game about transitioning away from coal but do everything to prevent alternatives from getting a foothold in the state. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Van Nostrand, who is the director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law, with a successful career as a partner in the Environmental and Natural Resources Practice Group of a large law firm based in the Pacific Northwest. He has represented energy clients in state regulatory proceedings in eight western states, as well as proceedings before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Van Nostren. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, on Friday, the House passed the Build Back Better $2 trillion bill on a 220 to 216 vote in the House with one Democratic Congressman, Jared Golden of Maine, voting against it. The vote, of course, de delayed for over eight hours on Thursday night by Kevin McCarthy, who went on a extended rant against the Socialist Democrats. He even talked about the manufacturing of baby carrots. However, um, the real issue, surely, James, is that now that it's gone to the Senate, what's its fate with Joe Manchin still not on board this bill? Could he torpedo the entire Democratic and Biden agenda. It's 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 very unclear where he's where he's going to come out. He certainly has made statements more or less all over the place. I, I think probably the statements that are the most concerning when he's when he when he's expresses concern about inflation, um, because this is it's a substantial amount of, of spending, and I think um, he, he could probably use that as a basis for for um, opposing it. And there's and also there's a lot of uh, Clean energy measures in there that uh, you know he pretty much torpedoed on his own the clean electricity performance program um, that was kind of the centerpiece of how we're going to address climate change. There's still 555 billion dollars of programs for clean energy. I suspect he's not going to be uh, too supportive of those measures as well. But if he makes inflation the issue, the bill is largely paid for according to the Congressional Budget Office. It falls short by $367 billion. However, it doesn't take into account the beefing up of the IRS's enforcement and collection abilities. So there's obviously not an inflationary factor here in this bill. But, I mean, we don't know where the facts matter with Senator Kirsten Sinema. We don't even know how she, what makes her tick. But do facts matter to Joe Manson? I, I think it's a really good point in terms of, of, of what the analysis shows, the, the Congressional Budget Office, but I, I think it's, it's kind of a headline test for him. I think he knows that the, the polls show that people are very concerned about inflation, the numbers in terms of price increases over the last 12 months. suggests so there's a real fear there. I think most would say, well, this is all supply chain 
issues. It'll sort itself out as the pandemic takes care of itself. But it's 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 kind of a headline test with him. It's something he can grab onto, even though the the detail analysis really doesn't doesn't support it. I think that's important to him. So, if you were in Biden's position, what would you do to get Joe Manchin aboard this bill? Boy, I tell you, the Biden administration has has pulled out all the stops in terms of trying to um, give Joe Manchin what he wants. I mean, we've had two cabinet secretaries make personal visits to West Virginia, and they both got tours of, of coal mines. Uh, his wife is now co-chairing the Appalachian Regional Commission. Um, he's gotten so much more attention from the White House probably than any other any other senator. Um, you know, I... I think the case still needs to be made how how much West Virginians will benefit from the Build Back Better, the, all the elements in there and the, and the spending. I mean, West Virginia is a very poor state, and uh, that that kind of money is going to going to produce a lot of benefits for West Virginians. And I think that's something that I would hope would would resonate him. It certainly resonated with his predecessor Robert Byrd. I mean, he's sitting in Robert Byrd's seat. Robert Byrd would not have said no to this legislation based on concerns about inflation but i i think it's been a, a real challenge for the for the biden white house to, to figure out how to get uh, mansion on board so the fact that mansion's family business run by his son is a coal distribution business how big a factor is that in his rejection of alternative energy i mean we can also i don't know you can't blame the father for the daughter's activities, but his daughter ran a pharmaceutical company <laughs> where she jacked up the price of EpiPens, epinephrine, which EMS and fire crews need to respond to people who go into anaphylactic shock, and they right. jacked the price up 600% or something outrageous. So that, I don't know whether the daughter's sins can be visited upon the father, but still, is he a... And closer to West Virginia, she engineered a merger that resulted in the Milan plant in Morgantown being closed down and 1,500 people being laid off while she walks off with a severance package in excess of $30 million. So um, it's, it's it's even closer to home um, for West Virginia. I mean, I've, I've been reluctant to, 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 to suggest that, that the the family coal business is that much of a of a driver um he's, he's obviously gotten a lot of financial support from the fossil fuel industry this year um i think it's it's more of a case of who does he talk to about these things um i don't think he talks to my my friends in the environmental community in west virginia very much i know he talks regularly with nick akins who's the president of american electric power and when Manchin makes statements like well we don't need to spend all this money for the clean electricity performance program because that transition is already happening in West Virginia. Well, it's just not true. We're, we're still 91% coal fired. So that transition is not happening. Um, we need the transition to happen more quickly. And, uh, we, and he's got, well, the person he talks to has got three coal plants that the West Virginia public service commission just authorized to remain open for another uh, 19 years through 2040. So Nick Akins will say, well, we got a really good deal in West Virginia. We've got these three coal plants that are going to remain open for another 19 years. Those are the kind of people that, that Joe Manchin talks to. So I'm, I'm reluctant to, to say he's, he's that heavily influenced by his own personal stake in the coal family business in West Virginia. It's just a matter of, of where, do you get, where are you getting information from? Who, gets, who has your ear um, when these issues are in front of the Senate? And is it also true that he or at least the coal lobby, which controls the state, um, presumably by extension, has a lot of influence over Mansion. Didn't they yeah. block a big natural gas electric plant in West Virginia? Yes, um, there, were, there were three, actually three really efficient, would have been produced electricity at a very low cost that were proposed by uh, uh, developers, um, one in Moundsville, one in Harrison County, one in Brook County. It would have been collectively... $2.1 billion of new investment in natural gas generating facilities in West Virginia that were, that were blocked. Um, and I, I think the governor, Jim Justice, probably had a bigger role in that than did, than did Senator Manchin. But one way or another, it's not a friendly business climate in West Virginia to generate electricity with anything other than coal. 
And again, I'm speaking with James Van Nostrand, who's the director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law with a successful career as a partner in the environmental and natural resources practice group of a large law firm based in the Pacific Northwest. He has represented energy clients in state regulatory proceedings in eight western states, as well as proceedings before the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Now, James, you're a Republican, right, who's, who's migrated because of Trump? Is that an yeah, I'm a Yeah, I'm, I'm a lifelong Republican. My father ran as a moderate Republican for the U.S. Senate from Iowa, where I grew up back in 1978. Um, but, I've, yeah, I'm, I'm probably a, a never-Trump Republican. I'm waiting for the party to, to regain its, its senses. Um, I'm, I'm currently living in, in Maryland, where um, we have a very good Republican governor, Larry Hogan. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been hard hanging in there with the Republican Party these days. And isn't it true, though, that Joe Manchin is about the only Democrat that could get elected in the state of West Virginia? Yeah, he had a very close election. He only won by 18,000 votes um, in, in uh, 2018. So, um, and he's, he's, a, he's a very good politician. He's a very skilled politician. He works very hard to, to represent his constituents. Um, he's always in the state. You know, we're not that far from Washington D.C. So Senator Manchin is in in the state a lot. I, yeah, I can't I can't see another Democrat who would potentially um, be able to carry that state. When you look at the kind of margins that Trump carried it by in 2020. Well, but when you look at the margins that the Democrats control the Senate by, if you didn't have Manchin, Mitch McConnell wouldn't be the majority leader. Correct. Yeah, correct. So, does he use the leverage of the possibility that he could? walk across the aisle or become an independent there was there was talk of that a couple of months ago when the heat was really high on on getting him on board to support the various pieces of the biden agenda it was it it and there were some suggestions in the in the media that he'd had he had had, had serious conversations about becoming independent and who would still caucus with uh, with the democrats i mean i i think that he probably throws those things out there just to kind of kind of restore perspective in terms of uh, you know how lucky they are that they, that he was able to, able to get reelected in West Virginia. Let's not lose perspective of that. But I I, I think there was talk of, of him of him doing that. And then you know I think he's it looks like he's going to run for reelection in in 2024. So he's got to be thinking about that. It's going to be it'll be hard to get reelected in West Virginia. I don't think he had a particularly strong Republican candidate. It was Attorney General Patrick Morrissey who. He beat in in 2018. Um, I don't. It's it's Republicans can run a, a stronger candidate against him, but uh, I don't know. And, and we'll see if, if if some of the potential opponents gain some traction. When you look at the when you look at the benefits to West Virginia that are potentially being left on the table by his opposition to the to the spending that on infrastructure and and um, the Build Back Better that the that the Biden administration is proposing those. That's a lot of money being left on the table for West Virginians. Maybe he'll be held accountable for that. And the West Virginian electorate know that? I mean, don't they, aren't they um, sort of indoctrinated by Fox and Sinclair? There's very little <laughs> alternative media in West Virginia. Yeah, well, there's the, the Charleston Gazette Mail, which I think is a, is a pretty... And then there's, there's a couple... There's a, some good newspapers in the state still. But no, I, I think it... It's a very, it's a very good point as to how how well aware the media is of the, the benefits that are potentially being left on the table by Manchin's opposition to these these spending proposals. And to the broader issues of the damage to the state from coal mining, the, the deaths, the history, which have been largely buried in the textbooks of the violence against miners and the almost civil war battles between sort of Pinkerton-type vigilante police and uh, coal miners. And then you've got mountaintop removal, which is a factor that's also complicating these flash floods that in these valleys uh, happen because of global warming. Uh, The University of California, Berkeley, recently did a study that said if you got rid of coal nationally, you would prevent $1.7 trillion in health and environmental damages through 2050. And you can also the U.S. could generate 80% of its power from renewables by 2030. 
without causing electricity prices to rise. So wind and solar is on the move. Obviously, this battery storage technologies that may not be up to speed enough or available enough. So those factors are part of the mix in terms of, you know, what the newspapers in West Virginia are talking about? I think some newspapers are talking about it. I think it's become more and more apparent that our continuing dependence on coal has not been good for ratepayers, and that's apart from all the other environmental issues that you mentioned. But but uh, I've been studying this issue. I've been in West Virginia since 2011, and since I've been in, in the state, um, our electricity prices have gone up at five times the national average because coal ceased to be a, the most cost-effective means to generate electricity once the shale gas revolution was underway in 2008, 2009. But yet, West Virginia continued. We doubled down on coal. We, we, were, we were bringing coal plants into the regulated rate base instead of diversifying into cheap and cleaner natural gas. And now wind and solar plus battery storage technology is cheaper than running an existing coal plant. We have not done any of those things. We're still 91% coal-fired, and we have the electricity rates to show for it. So I think, and then as I mentioned, there was a recent decision of the Public Service Commission in West Virginia um, authorizing American Electric Power to spend $450 million dollars to keep three coal plants in West Virginia open for another 19 years. Those coal plants are out of the money now. They're uneconomic, but yet the Public Service Commission is allowing these utilities to spend another almost a half a billion dollars to keep them open another 19 years. Now, that's going to fall on, on the ratepayers of West Virginia, and I, I think the, the word is starting to get out there. Why why our electricity rates have gone up so much? Why... And it's because we're on a coal-dependent path that is no, it is far from the cheapest path. Um, I think people are saying, and we're missing out on a lot of job opportunities in terms of the clean energy sector, wind and solar and energy efficiency. Those jobs aren't coming to West Virginia because we're on a we're on a coal-dependent path, and the politicians, the policymakers, seem determined to keep us on that path. And Joe Manchin is certainly not doing anything to help us get off that path. Uh, just by getting rid of the clean electricity performance standard, which he did, that would have produced a lot of money to subsidize utilities in West Virginia and to start making the move away from coal, which has served our ratepayers so badly over the last decade. But that that was shelved. But that would have been a lot of money, a lot of clean energy jobs that would have come to West Virginia, would have helped lower our electricity prices, help us get us off this expensive coal-dependent path. But he, but he personally tubed that. So just in the last minute here, Joe Manchin is in his 70s. I don't know how he feels about his children and particularly his grandchildren and their future. Recently, of course, he was caught driving his Maserati uh, surrounded by some protesters who sort of beat on the window of the car and said, is all you care about money? And I don't know whether that would necessarily be a good way to persuade him or change his mind. But in general, is there any inkling that he has, he's a little sentient about the reality of this endangered planet and what's causing global warming? Well, I know he, he no longer denies that human activity has something to do with climate change. In fact, he was a keynote speaker at a conference that we put on at the law school probably 2013-2014, where Senator Manchin acknowledged that um, climate change is happening and human activity clearly has something to do with it. And that was rather that was the first time he'd ever made that statement, acknowledging that connection. I I think he does not appreciate at all the sense of urgency. Because when he when he first started expressing opposition to the Clean Electricity Performance Program, he was saying, why are we paying utilities to do what they're already already doing? What's the sense of urgency? Well one, they're not doing that in West Virginia. And two we have to dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The IPCC report that came out a few months ago, it's pretty much code red in terms of how quickly we have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to avoid irreversible climate change and temperature rise. And I don't think he has any comprehension for the urgency that we need to take action. He wouldn't be saying those things. But then, you know, his his views are also being shaped by who he talks to. And it's people like Nick Aikens that and American Electric Power, who are saying, you know, everything's fine. We don't, we're already making that transition, so we don't need, don't need the money. So I, I, and I, 
and he has acknowledged, I mean, he had, a, he had an op-ed piece with Lisa Murkowski in the Washington Post a few years ago, acknowledging, you know, the role of climate change. We had floods in 2016 that killed 23 people in West Virginia. He cited that in the op-ed piece. So he's saying some things from time to time that, that indicate he has some knowledge of the seriousness of climate change, but I don't think he appreciates the sense of urgency um, the, the, we've, we've got to just stop burning fossil fuels. And we had a huge opportunity with the Clean Electricity Performance Program to, to provide a lot of federal dollars to West Virginia to help us start making that transition and help us produce clean energy jobs in West Virginia. And he just said no, because there's, there's no sense of no sense of urgency. So I just, you know, he, he, he gets it in the big picture in terms of, yes, human activity does affect climate change. But but uh, not about the, how quickly we need to take actions. Well, James Van Nostrand, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Good talking and to again, you. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with James Van Nostrand, who's director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law with a successful career as a partner in the Environmental and Natural Resources Practice Group of a large law firm based in the Pacific Northwest. He has represented energy clients in state regulatory proceedings in eight western states, as well as proceedings before the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with the editor-in-chief of Haaretz in Israel about a conference at UCLA today, which you can link to at backgroundbriefing.org. We'll be speaking about the war in the shadows between Israel and Iran using cyber weapons and sophisticated assassination tools and whether that advances Israel's national security in the absence of diplomacy and whether attempts by the Israeli right to buy off the Palestinians without granting them statehood will ever work. Well, I was born to coal miner's daughter In a cap on a hill in Butcher Hollow We were poor, but we had love That's the one thing that Daddy made sure of He shoveled coal to make a poor man's dollar Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Aluf Ben, who's the editor-in-chief of the Haaretz newspaper, who has covered Israeli leadership, foreign policy, and national security throughout six prime ministers, from Yitzhak Rabin through Benjamin Netanyahu's second term. A regular contributor to The Guardian, he's reported on Arab-Israeli wars and peace efforts since the Oslo Accords of 1993, and his work is also at Appeared in the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, and Newsweek. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aloof Ben. Hi, good morning. Good morning, and thanks for joining us. And on Sunday, today, you'll be a part of an online conference at UCLA through the UCLA YNS Desarian Center's website. People can join in, and also at Haaretz's uh, Facebook page, people can join in. We will, of course, link those to our backgroundbriefing.org website. But the virtual conference on Israeli security uh, has Benny Gantz, the Israeli defense minister, speaking along with Yossi Cohen, the former head of Mossad, Merev Bekele, the chair of Israel's Labor Party, U.S. Senator Robert Menendez, Ambassador Martin Indyk, former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, and Sippy Libni, the former Israeli Foreign and Justice Minister, along with uh, our guest here today, Aluf Ben. So it's a pretty extraordinary um, what is <laughs> gathering of experts there. Um, so what's prompting this? Is there a sense that there's something happening in terms of Israel's security that is different from the usual, which is not obviously a particularly um, peaceful situation in the first place. So what's happening behind the scenes here? Well, look, we have two new governments, both in the United States, that is in office, it's been in office less, for less than a year. We have a new government in Israel, the Naftali Bennett government, that has been in office barely five months, uh, taking over from Netanyahu. Both new governments operate under the shadow of their populist, but quite dominant, uh, at least publicly, predecessors. Uh, and they want to show change on one hand, and on the other hand, not to appear to be you know, going too far in terms of uh, giving away 
strategic positions and so on. And the three main issues on the table here are first, the Iran nuclear program, the Iranian nuclear program and the presumed resumed talks uh, with Iran later this month by the superpowers. Will the nuclear agreement of 2015 come back to life? And if not, what kind of balance of power can be built in the Middle East between Israel or the, and the pro-American camp and Iran on the other side? How does that affect the positions and actions of relevant regional players? Uh, can Bennett change Netanyahu's policy of opposing any deal with Iran? Uh, so far, he has indicated that uh, he's not willing to support any, any such move. Then you have the Palestinians that are always predominant, uh, predominant issue on the Israeli horizon. And uh, although we, we have been going through a relatively quiet period in the past six months, uh, the West Bank, Gaza are always on the verge or we always fear the next explosion. How will the Bennett government deal with that? Unlike uh, the former right-wing government, this is a very odd coalition of left and right-wing parties with very different ideological and voter bases. Uh, the first time, for the first time in Israel's history, an Arab party representing the Islamic movement is part of the coalition and the government. How will they react to another explosion across the border in Gaza or, or in the territories? Um, and, and last but not least, how will, US and, how will the U.S. and Israel deal with their shaky alliance at a time when uh, the Netanyahu government sided firmly with the Republicans, the American political divide? But the other side, uh, the government that succeeded Netanyahu, has so far failed to build similar rapport with the Democrats. So can Israel even dream of resuming the kind of bipartisan support base that it enjoyed for decades in the United States? Or is it over and uh, Israel will be the fetish of Republicans or, or more defense and, and uh, centrist Democrats? And, and uh, while on the other side, uh, the American left is turning away from Israel. The Bennett government doesn't seem to have a good answer to that. Uh, and the Biden administration is obviously preoccupied with other issue, with other issues, predominantly China and Iran, and the alliance with Israel is not stopping its agenda. So how can you reconcile all this together? Uh, and at least in Israel, this is a very, very unprecedented sort of coalition government, uh, and nobody knows what the future holds for this coalition. And that's why it's a good uh, as ever, but in particular, good opportunity to discuss all these issues and to see how the political change is affecting policy changes, balances of power, the future of the Middle East, etc. But at this moment, there are some hot spots uh, clearly emerging in the context of what the conference is covering here today. And I'm sure Yossi Cohen, the former head of Mossad, will be addressing my understanding that Israeli intelligence for the longest time have been watching the uh, Iran's ability to get enriched uranium to the point of having fissile material for a bomb. And apparently, according to uh, what has been said over the last few months, it looks as if Iran has reached that point now. So that's number one. And then number two, there was just a, an Iranian drone strike on an American base in Syria which was apparently conducted in retaliation to an Israeli strike on Iranian targets inside of Syria. So that's a real flashpoint. And then on the other more domestic issue in terms of Israel, which, again, Benny Gantz, the Israeli defense minister, has already been involved in negotiations with the other security heads of Shin Bet and Mossad over the uptick in violence from the settler movement against Palestinians in the Palestinian territories who are in, engaged in the olive harvest. So those are pretty serious flashpoints to begin with at the moment, are they not? Of course. And, uh, and, and you know, bear in mind that Yossi Cohen, former head of Mossad, was in charge of Israeli covert action against Iran for 
several years. And there's a big debate whether, you know, all these uh, explosions and, uh, and other successful operations that are, you know, Israel usually doesn't take responsibility, but everybody assumes that it was an Israeli action. But that did not stop Iran from enriching more and more uranium to higher and higher levels of enrichment. And, uh, and therefore, there's a big debate whether, whether Israel went in the wrong direction, flexing its muscles, but with, uh, with very little uh, to, show, to show for it. And obviously, the supporters of that would say that, you know, we delayed and deferred and uh, we pushed the superpowers to deal with Iran, etc. But that's a big issue. And on the territories, this government uh, appears to be more lenient vis a vis settler violence against the Palestinians uh, in the holy harvest in, in, in general uh, and in the, in the rural areas in the West Bank, as you mentioned. But it also decided on a major settlement expansion program with 3,000 new housing units approved. And last but not least, the Bennett government opposes the, opposes the pledge of the Biden administration to reopen the American consulate in Jerusalem. That is the de facto thinly veiled embassy to the Palestinians when it was shut down by President Trump. And Bennett indicated that uh, he opposes its reopening uh, because, you know, Jerusalem should be only for Israel and, uh, and any, any effort to have a linkage to the Palestinians in Jerusalem would be seen as a de facto agreement to partition and the future two-state solution that Bennett opposes and that Israeli right-wing sees as its anathema. So in this case, we see an even, uh, even a deterioration in the West Bank situation compared to the Netanyahu period. And, and overall, we have, we have aging, you know, we have aging President Abbas of the Palestinian Authority with uh, 86, and he's not getting younger, and nobody knows, there's no you know, mode for success, you know, succession. organized succession process in the, yeah. in the Palestinian Authority. So who would know who would take over, who would take charge? What would be the re- relationship between PA and Hamas after that? So as you mentioned, it's, it's, uh, it's always flashpoints and always, uh, and always it's on the verge of some sort of trouble. And we will try to find a way to, to explain this mess and, and to chart some way around it and, and within it. But the two-state solution came about not by Israeli peaceniks, but by hard-nosed military leaders like Yehoshaf Kabi, former head of uh, Israeli military intelligence, former chief of staff, Yitzhak yeah. Rabin, etc. They saw the two-state solution largely as a security issue. And that I don't understand how the Israeli right doesn't see that that vision, uh, and and furthermore, the Israeli right has never spelled out what their end game is. You know what what do they want to do with the Palestinians? Do you have any idea? Yeah, they want to keep them under some sort of Israeli control without full civil rights. They don't, and they don't even. Uh, they're not. They're not even ashamed of saying that, as they were in the past. Uh, they say, oh, well, they will have autonomy in the Palestinian Authority or in Gaza, as they have, and more or less controlled from the outside and, and uh, from around them by Israeli army and settlements and, uh, you know, Israel controlling the external borders and the airspace and airwaves and so on. And uh, that, that, that's how they see it. They don't want to change the status quo. To them, to the right wing, I'm not talking about the very far right that talks about uh, about war crimes and expulsion of populations. The, the established right, they would, uh, including including Prime Minister Bennett, is one of the most outspoken uh, um, poster boys of that of that idea. Is that to keep the current status quo for as long as possible? And uh, and what Netanyahu tried to show. And during the Trump period, was that was that Israel can get away with that? In other words, the Abraham Accords, the deal, peace deals between Israel, United Arab Emirates, Morocco, Bahrain, and to a lesser extent Sudan, showed that these Arab states were willing to do business with Israel without 
giving anything. They're throwing even a little tiny bone to the Palestinians. Moreover, you could see the last week the commander of the Israeli Air Force, General Norkin, visiting the UAE in the open. You had uh, the Bahraini and, and the Emir- Emirati armies and air forces holding joint drills with Israel and the United States. This is unprecedented. But it strengthens the vision of the right wing, which says, you see, we can reach out to the further away Arab states without having to give anything to the Palestinians in return, which is a different paradigm than the one that Rabin or Ehud Barak or Ehud Olmert uh, acted upon. And there are several reasons for that. You know, Europe, that used to be the champion of the Palestinian rights for many, many years, is now crumbling under its own domestic, uh, economic, and immigration problems. They don't have a consensus among themselves or, or any spare energy to help the Palestinians. The United States, where you had a succession of American administrations that were committed to the two-state solution or to the road towards it from the first Bush administration with Baker as the Secretary of State uh, reopening the, peace, the original peace process with uh, the Clinton administration and the Camp David, the failed Camp David conference, and then and then George W. Bush with the Gaza supporting the Gaza disengagement, holding the Annapolis Peace Conference, to the last Kerry mission in the second term of President Obama. Since then, the U.S. also turned away from trying to actively promote the two-state solution beyond token words and the occasional, the occasional uh, you know, State Department statement uh, criticizing the settlement extension or whatever. But is there a contradiction here, Aloof Ben, in Naftali Bennett's coalition? You mentioned earlier that there's a Arab, Israeli, Palestinian um, Islamist party, a part of the coalition, and that party, I understand, its constituencies is that in these recent, the most recent uprisings that happened in, within Israel itself, there were Jewish vigilantes storming through Arab communities, and these communities had been under-resourced, particularly with security, and they were preyed upon by Arab gangs. And basically, the lesson there is that if you give the Palestinians services, then you solve problems. And can't that be extended broadly into the whole Palestinian question? In other words, do you help the Palestinians have a better standard of living, or do you constantly humiliate them and not give them a future? Yeah, but this, but this is not necessarily mutually exclusive, because what, what Bennett and, to some extent, what Netanyahu did when he was in office, what he called economic peace, was not exactly peace. But the idea was that if you help the Palestinian economy grow, that would reduce the motivation and the ability for them to risk it with the third intifada, with another round of bus bombings, etc. And Bennett, Bennett and Gantz indicated, the defense minister indicated they're willing to go even more towards economic development in Gaza and in the West Bank. But the problem is that you can, you can give people... Uh, a much higher standard of living, but when they want their independence, their their national freedom, their national self-expression, you cannot buy it out just by saying, okay, we'll give you 10,000 more work permits in Israel and uh, $700 million a month more for the PA budget or something like that. that that's, that's a problem here, that, that it's not that 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 uh, this is a way to de- to defer the issue you know we'll give you some money and don't don't raise your your head with uh, national self expression uh, ideas or with uh, the the ideas of independence and so far it's been working for the israeli right wing and bennett is part of the right wing regardless of his coalition and of how the the bbists are calling him leftist and so on he's not a leftist so just in closing, Aluf Ben, then just back to the broader foreign policy issues involving Israel, and that is, of course, the fact that yeah. Iran has probably at this point reached the threshold of having enough fissile material for at least one nuclear weapon. Given that the uh, talks are being revived, uh, apparently, 
in Vienna between the P5 plus one, the JCPOA, yeah. and the Biden administration. What's your sense of what might happen here in terms of a move by Israel, or are they going to wait and see what happens, do you think, with these talks in Vienna? Well, you know, first of all, Israel doesn't have much choice. You know, it could do uh, stupid uh, uh, gestures like, uh, you know, Bennett refusing to meet Rob Mali, the American delegate uh, to the Iran talks when he visited Israel several days ago. But beyond that, look, there, there, there is a camp in Israel, several experts argue that the real dilemma here is bomb or, or, or have the Iranian bomb. Either Israel goes to war against Iran, trying to destroy its nuclear facilities and uh, at least delayed inevitable by several more years at the risk of overall war with Iran, with its uh, affiliate in Lebanon, Hezbollah, threatening Israel with thousands and thousands of long-range rockets and missiles. So that's, that's one uh, argument. And the other argument is that just like between India and Pakistan and the, the superpowers back in days of the Cold War. Israel and the nuclear Iran will learn to balance each other out because, you know, at the time when Israel, when Israel um, ran a diplomatic campaign against Iran, it also got itself equipped with uh, submarines that are supposed to save as a kind of second strike force. You know, when you build a second strike force, you have to assume that someone else who's not your friend, will, be, will have the ability for a first strike. So Israel is building itself and arming itself for the inevitable. And the big debate in Israel is, can Israel go it alone and stop Iran? Or Israel is too dependent on, uh, on American support and uh, military aid and diplomatic cover, etc. that it cannot do anything on its own to change the course of Iranian behavior beyond you know, token gestures of destroying this or that or killing a scientist or trying to embarrass Iran. Well, Aluf Ben, these issues, of course, will be discussed today online at the conference that's organized by the UCLA YNS Nazarian Center. You can go to their website or Haaretz's Facebook page to get details of this important conference on Israeli national security. Thank you so much, by the way, for joining us, Alouf. Thank you. And again, I'm speaking with Alouf Ben, who's the editor-in-chief of Haaretz newspaper, who has covered Israeli leadership, foreign policy, and national security throughout six prime ministers from Yitzhak Rabin through Benjamin Netanyahu's second term. He's a regular contributor to The Guardian and has reported on Israeli-Arab wars and peace efforts since the Oslo Accords of 1993. And his work has also appeared in The New York Times, Foreign Affairs, and Newsweek. And again, go to backgroundbriefing.org for the links to today's important conference at UCLA on Israel's national security. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.
One more light goes on.